Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfi, editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's July 6, 2022. I don't usually indicate the specific date that we record the podcast, but this month I think it is important to put a timestamp on our discussion because the topic of this month's podcast, the global outbreak of monkeypox, is rapidly evolving. As of July 5th, 2022, almost 7,000 cases of monkeypox have been diagnosed in 52 countries as part of this global outbreak. That includes 560 cases here in the U.S. This outbreak raises many important issues worthy of discussion. The issues that we'll be focusing on today are those related to infection prevention and control in hospitals and other healthcare settings, such as emergency departments and outpatient clinics. My guests today are members of the Infection Control Unit, the BioThreats Program, and the Infectious Diseases Division at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, who are involved, one way or another, in the diagnosis and management of the first recognized U.S. case of monkeypox in the current outbreak. They're here today to talk about their experience, some of which has been included in two papers that they have recently published in Itchy, as well as a case report published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think their insight will be helpful to all of us who are involved in our facility's monkeypox preparedness and response activities. Joining me are Erica Shinoy, Associate Chief of the Infection Control Unit and Medical Director of the MGH Regional Emerging Special Pathogens Treatment Center at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Nesli Bazgas, Associate Chief and Clinical Director of the Infectious Disease Division at Massachusetts General Hospital. Keeman Zachary, Assistant Chief of the Infection Control Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital. Eileen Searle, Critical Care Nurse and Leader of the BioThreats Program at MGH and Director of Funded Projects at the MGH Regional Emerging Special Pathogens Treatment Center. And finally, Meredith Fahey, Infection Preventionists with a background in emergency medicine and infectious diseases and the MGH Regional Emerging Special Pathogens Treatment Center and MGH Infection Control Unit. Thanks to all of you for joining me. So I think that as the number of cases of monkeypox continues to increase around the world, our listeners who are developing or enhancing their own infection control protocols and strategies will appreciate the opportunity to learn from your experiences. And as is true for other communicable diseases, rapid identification of potential cases of monkeypox is a critical step in minimizing the risk of transmission within our healthcare facilities as well as in the community. And this can be particularly challenging, I think, for a disease like monkeypox, which most clinicians outside of endemic areas have never seen, and prior to this global outbreak, many people had not even heard of. Nestle, in May of this year, you were on the clinical team that was involved in the evaluation and subsequent diagnosis of the first U.S. case involved in this current outbreak. Since that time, there have been a number of efforts to increase awareness among healthcare personnel and the public but I suspect there's still substantial opportunity to increase clinicians' awareness of and knowledge regarding monkeypox. So what should clinicians be looking for and thinking about now? Thank you, David, and thank you for having me. I think that the important thing to remember here with infectious diseases, and that includes viruses like monkeypox, is there's never been one route of transmission for most viruses, and there's never been one clinical presentation for most viruses. And so as clinicians, we have to remain open to the possibility that we'll not only might be seeing a virus that hasn't been documented in humans, but that we might be seeing a 
new presentation or a new route of transmission of that infection. And so fortunately, many times looking at the patient or the syndrome or the culture data, we have a diagnosis early on. When we don't, I think we rely on a conceptual framework that we discussed in the recent New England Journal CPC. And that framework really asks, how can we put together the patient's symptoms, any potential incubation period or activities and routes of transmission, and come up with a list of potential infections that then we can eliminate. In this case, I think that when we say that this wasn't a classical presentation, we have to remember two things, that we often see the top of a pyramid of infectious diseases first. We recognize the most ill patients, and that happened with Legionnaire's disease, a lot of other things. And then we as we learn about the infection, we recognize people who are less ill or perhaps minimally symptomatic. And the second thing is, depending on how the patient acquired the infection, the findings change. And in this case, it was pretty clear that the clinical findings supported this being a sexually transmitted infection, not only based on close contact, but sexual transmission. And testing eliminated many other possibilities. So the key was to go back to the clinical findings, the pox-like rash, and ask, what else could this be? And the key, I think, feature here that transparency and reporting meant that the UK cases had just been posted on the internet, and I was able to link to those. So I think those are some important features. And I think now we do understand a lot more about monkeypox and how it's presenting in many cases, at least. Can you describe that a little bit for us? So what kind of epidemiologic factors or clinical findings should really make people quickly think about the possibility of monkeypox? Yes, I think that contact with a known uh, patient, obviously, is, is one factor. But it's become clear that MSM are overrepresented in the outbreak in the U.S., that in addition, the localization of the lesions in many, though not all of the patients, the initial localization supports a sexual route of transmission. And that although the classic descriptions of monkeypox say systemic symptoms before skin lesions, in this case, because the virus appears to have been inoculated at the sites of sexual activity, the lymphadenitis and the systemic symptoms actually followed the localized lesions. So we have to be aware that the order of those may change depending on the route of transmission. Great, thanks, that's really helpful. And for anybody who's not familiar with the abbreviation MSM, that's men who have sex with men. So just to clarify that. And I think that's a great maybe time to kind of switch over to some of our infection prevention and control experts here with us today. So how can our infection prevention and control teams work with clinicians to increase their awareness of this disease and enhance early identification of potential cases? So I could start out with that and then turn it over to our team if that's okay. So this is Erica here. So I think part of it is represented by the group that's on here. So you'll see that we've got infectious disease clinicians, we've got emergency preparedness, we've got infection prevention and control. And a lot of this education is around making sure that the individuals who might encounter a patient either physically present as they come to an emergency department, to an ambulatory location, later identified while they're already an inpatient, as was our initial case here, but also when patients are calling into the office, that they have 
a list of things that they're thinking about, can ask the right questions, and then immediately act in terms of appropriate isolation and who to inform next. So I might maybe turn it over to Meredith Fahey of our team to talk about the emergency department, because I think this is an area where, you know, it's a very busy location. This is one more thing on the emergency department's list of things to think about. And so how do you think about some of the challenges in the ED? And then it might make sense to talk to Keeman about our ambulatory practice and thinking about how we manage patients who might call to an outpatient clinic, an ID clinic, sexual health, travel clinic, those sorts of patients. Meredith, what do you think? Great. Thanks, Erica. This is Meredith Fahey here. So yeah, we definitely have, I think, learned that there are successes and challenges that we've seen with this outbreak. So in our, our emergency department, we utilize the identify, isolate, and inform algorithm. That was something that we already had in place to be able to quickly identify patients that present and need you know, immediate isolation action for further evaluation and management. And I really see this as a success in our ED because this is a something that we already do. We already have this sort of process implemented and in place. Let me just describe what we do a little bit further. So when we have a patient that presents to our emergency department, we at the first point of contact take a targeted travel history, which allows our frontline staff to identify patients who may have had travel to an area where there's an outbreak of concerns such as Ebola or MERS or avian influenza for a couple examples. We then use a system of both electronic symptom travel and exposure screening tools that are built into our EMR, as well as some other resources that are available to our frontline staff. So this allows us to really early identify patients who may have be presenting with symptoms or some epi risk of a disease that we're concerned about. Now, when it comes to monkeypox, you know, as the PUI definition and things that we are using to inform these tools was evolving, that's certainly a challenge because things are evolving and changing and we're trying to update our frontline staff so that they have the most relevant information at their fingertips. So that was certainly a challenge that I think we saw was just keeping up to date with the most relevant information that we were, were receiving at the time. And then as we think about our next step, which, which is isolation, we really have this sort of system really built in nice in our emergency department where once we have that identification done, our staff know what really our first steps of isolation are, which is always to get the patient to wear a face mask, initiate our transmission-based isolation, and then move into the further steps of our isolation. So I really see this as a success in our emergency department because we already do these things. People are familiar with these processes. So although monkeypox was new, we were really able to utilize our protocols that were already in place and get people isolated quickly in that process. And then as we move into our informed step of it, you know, looping in our key players, like we've already talked about how many of us are already on this call and then how we loop in our external contacts as well, our public health authorities. So I think because we already have some of these things in place, we were really set up for success. And of course, with a few speed bumps along the way, but I think overall our emergency department did a really great job in responding thus far. Great. Keeman, maybe you can talk about the outpatient or ambulatory care setting for us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, many of the same procedures described by Meredith are pertinent to the uh, outpatient setting. In addition, I'll mention that our institution has a cadre of infectious disease physicians available for consultation regarding the evaluation and, and triage of the, these cases by phone. So when 
a clinician identifies somebody in the ambulatory setting who is at risk for having monkeypox, who's a suspect case, we ask them to call one of these infectious disease clinicians, so-called uh, biothreats uh, attendings, to help walk them through the case and to uh, perform a risk assessment. In the ambulatory setting, these patients uh, should be placed in a, a private room immediately. If a negative pressure uh, isolation room is available, that's preferred. And uh, isolation precautions with gown, gloves, N95 respirator equivalent and eye protection implemented promptly. So I think that's a great segue and really a start of the discussion of the infection prevention strategies that we should implement when monkeypox is suspected. Maybe we can start or go back a little bit and talk about what we know about how monkeypox is transmitted. And that really helps to inform what we do from an infection control standpoint. So the transmission of monkeypox is the highest risk is from the patient's skin lesions. The highest titer of virus is in the skin lesions, be they wet or dry. And that's actually, the latter is an important distinction from, say, chickenpox. With chickenpox, when the lesions have crusted, we generally consider the patients no longer to be contagious. But with monkeypox and other orthopox virus infections, dry crusts are teeming with virus, and that's important to remember. The virus is also present in uh, the patient's uh, body fluids and potentially respiratory droplets as well, so that informs the nature of our isolation uh, procedures. Most of the risk is with direct contact skin contact or mucous membrane contact with skin lesions of the patient or with mucous membranes or body fluids from the patient. Respiratory droplet transmission is believed to be uh, significantly uh, less uh, efficient, requiring relatively prolonged close contact for that route to be relevant. Uh, however, a significant risk of transmission is associated with the aerosolization of infected materials. So say if bed linens are soiled with pus from the lesions or with dried crusts and someone's changing the linens and shakes them out and potentially aerosolizes infected material, that's a substantial risk of transmission as well. So I think that's a great introduction then to talking about what the currently recommended infection prevention practices four suspected or confirmed cases of monkeypox are. So, Erica, can you get us started in just a kind of a, an overview of the currently recommended practices? Sure. So, Keeman covered some of them in terms of the PPE in use. So, again, gown, gloves, and 95 respirator or equivalent, and eye protection for individuals interacting with the patient. The part about the patient placement in the room type, prior to kind of the last week in May, if I'm remembering correctly, the recommendation from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was a negative pressure or airborne infection isolation room. That changed. And so right now, a standard room is recommended, a private room, and then using airborne infection isolation rooms for procedures that may generate aerosols. Now, I would say our interpretation of that here at our institution, you should obviously be working with your own institution, your local public health about their recommendations are on this, is that 
initially when a patient presents, they can be somewhat undifferentiated. You know, there could be other infections for which an airborne infection isolation room would, would be relevant, or they you don't know if you might need to do an AGP on the patient. So our protocol as is, is to still use an airborne infection isolation room when available. Many times, especially in ambulatory settings, you don't have one and that's okay. You put them in a room and you close the door, patients mask themselves and use the, the appropriate PPE. I think one point that's been made a lot, it relates to waste management, because depending on the clade of monkeypox, it's either considered category A, if it's Congo Basin or you know, normal regulated medical waste, if it's West African. And so basically fairly early on, since all of this outbreak has really been related to West African, the waste has been managed as regular uh, medical waste and linens according to the CDC guidance as well. I think many cases of monkeypox, fortunately, in the current outbreak have been mild and have not required hospitalization. But of course, there are exceptions. And in fact, the case at MGH that we discussed earlier did require hospitalization. And if people are reading that case report in the New England Journal, which I encourage everyone to do, people will notice that your patient was cared for in your special pathogens unit. Most facilities don't have a dedicated unit. So can you tell us a little bit more about that unit and what we should be doing in our hospitals if we don't have such a place? Yeah, thanks so much, David. This is Eileen now. So as we've mentioned, MGH is the Regional Emerging Special Pathogens Treatment Center for the six New England states. And as such, we have a designated biocontainment unit, which offers our highest level of isolation for patients that require that for viral hemorrhagic fevers or smallpox. And then we do also have a special pathogens unit, which offers a step down in terms of tiers of isolation support provided. But we definitely recognize that not all facilities, and in fact, most facilities will not have these spaces available to them. One of the things that we did in creating these spaces, though, was adapt our existing spaces and other patient care areas to be able to support this. But the key thing really is going back to what Erica, Kimon, and Mary have already talked about in terms of isolation, which is following the current CDC guidance and whether it's monkeypox or another pathogen of concern, pre-identifying the spaces where you would isolate these patients if they require airborne infection isolation rooms or not, and ensuring that you have the processes and the training of the staff that work in those areas to maintain that safe isolation, to understand the donning and doffing of the ensemble of personal protective equipment you expect them to wear, you know, the doffing strategy and checklist is really important. And also just how to operate in those spaces to maximize, you know, the engineering controls available. Do staff understand the airborne infection isolation room, how it functions, how to monitor airflow, and then any additional policies and procedures a facility may have in place, ensuring that people are trained on those. So it's not so much having a highly specialized or highly designed unit, but really ensuring that you have pre-designated spaces in the training and resources to support the staff in those areas. Thanks. That's super helpful. We've talked earlier on about interventions that we can be doing to raise clinician awareness of monkeypox, but what else should our IPNC teams be doing to help their facilities prepare for perhaps their first potential case of monkeypox? 
I'm kind of glad that we got this under our belt and since then, you know, have evaluated multiple PUIs. But I think if you're in this, and once you've been through one, you've obviously been through one, but you've been able to exercise and kind of go through all the steps that we've talked about here. But if you haven't, I think the point that Eileen was mentioning is that you need to think about where you would take care of a patient at any point of entry. Make sure that people have the identify, isolate, inform part down cold and that you have ways to update folks as things change. Mary mentioned that things have changed a lot. We didn't change our travel protocol. You know, in the beginning, people were thinking, should we say target particular countries where there's an outbreak? We didn't go that route because things were evolving pretty quickly. And as we know today, that's not really very helpful, but you still have to have a way that you can inform your clinicians and give them the information they need to make those initial decisions. Because once they've gotten to the isolation, they talk to the right people then we can provide them all the additional support they need. But it's really those essential first steps that I would focus your efforts on about making sure that, you know, in each portal of entry for your institution, that the frontline staff are well-educated around identify, isolate, inform, that this information is readily available, that you communicate, that you don't print things out, we don't print anything out, that you just refer to a central, usually online repository where they can get the most up-to-date information. You know, one of the I think advantages of coming out or having gone through COVID is that I think people are more attuned to the flexibility that we have to have in order to respond and change. And so my own personal feeling with the response to monkeypox is that people were ready to understand that things would change over the as they have, and that they're really well primed to go look for the most recent information and not try to look at something that after a day or two may not be up to date. I don't know if others have thoughts about things that IPC should be doing now to continue to educate our frontline staff. This is Mary again. So I think that's a great point, Erica. And I think one thing that we focused a lot on was communication and how do we communicate the most relevant up-to-date information to our staff, our ED staff, our ambulatory staff, our inpatient staff that we're caring for these patients and utilizing both electronic educational things that we have. And again, really stressing that we don't print anything out because things were evolving. We were updating things almost daily. It felt like at certain points. And then also doing any sort of like just-in-time training. So if there was training that was needed right at that point of time, we were able to respond and support staff on the ground when that training was necessary. And then sort of thinking a little bit further about communication is, is how do we internally communicate with ourselves? And I think for other facilities that, you know, maybe haven't seen this yet, but are thinking about their protocols, it's really important to think about how are you communicating between your local leadership, between your infection control and ID teams? And then also at what point do you need to bring in your external key players as well? I think that's really important things to be thinking through ahead of time so that you're not scrambling if you were to see a case unexpectedly. I think another thing that facilities should be preparing for and that your team has had experience with is the need to conduct exposure investigations if you identify a case of monkeypox. The CDC currently states that any healthcare worker who has cared for a patient with monkeypox should be alert to the development of symptoms that could suggest monkeypox infection, especially within the 21-day period after the last date of potential contact. And I think it's important to note that this includes healthcare personnel who were using all recommended forms of PPE. 
And these investigations need to be conducted expediently because post-exposure prophylaxis, when it's indicated, should be given fairly quickly. Ideally, I believe it's within four days of the exposure. In a manuscript that's been accepted for publication in ITCHI and that's available online, you describe how you are able to conduct a contact investigation, assess the risk of exposures, and initiate symptom monitoring and even post-exposure prophylaxis assessment within a really short period of time after monkeypox was diagnosed. Can you briefly describe for us how you were able to approach this? Sure, well, I'll say that when people read the publication, it is all well laid out, but in the moment, this is hard. There is no doubt about it that this is a daunting task, especially in the setting where we were in, where there was not an officially posted exposure classification scheme. We were working in real time with CDC and our local MDPH and the Boston Public Health Commission to think about risk stratification. But in broad strokes, what we did is we followed our normal approach for doing contact tracing exposure investigation that every facility having been through the pandemic will know that you first start to try to identify both healthcare personnel as well as other patients and potentially visitors who could meet the definition of exposure. And I think in our experience, this was a little bit an overdrive because the patient had been seen in ambulatory settings and then had been admitted for five days to a general medical unit before the you know, monkeypox came on the differential and they were appropriately isolated. So in terms of exposure investigations, this was quite large to start with. The other piece that you mentioned is this time constraint where you need to really focus your efforts on getting vaccine, ideally within four days and within 14 days of the last exposure. So briefly, what we did is we started our normal process. We developed a line listing. We do use electronic tools to initially start that piece. And most institutions that have an electronic health record may have some version of this. But we also supplemented that with discussions, as we do for all other exposures, with the frontline staff, their managers, to basically add or subtract people from the list. We cast a very wide net, so our initial numbers were actually whittled down over the course of the investigation to people who actually met criteria for an exposure. We then uploaded them into a electronic data capture system. It's called REDCap. There's about 5,000 institutions or more worldwide who use this software. We've provided all of that information online, as well as for those who are not REDCap users at GitLab, we have posted all the code to do this, where we pulled in those employee uh, names. We then generated a automated survey to them to classify them according to their risk based on the current, at that time, risk classification scheme. Based on that scheme and their answers, they were then triaged to recommended for post-exposure prophylaxis, case-by-case -case discussion about post-exposure prophylaxis or not. And then everyone, according to the CDC guidance at the time, would be enrolled in symptom monitoring via text message or email to enable us to track them over time. I do want to turn this over to Keeman in a second to talk about that one piece about how we manage healthcare personnel who met criteria for high-risk exposure and so definitely were recommended for prophylaxis, and those in the intermediate category, a subset of whom could be receive post-exposure prophylaxis based on a case-by-case discussions, because he had a lot of those discussions with our employees, and they're not easy. Those are not easy discussions. Thank you, Erica. It was, uh, as you pointed out, a challenging situation that was occurring in rapid fashion in real time. In the course of discussing with 
employees their exposures, we often learned that the nature of their exposure was different from what was originally reported. So much of the discussion had to include a reassessment of the risk and often a recategorization of that risk. For patients who remained in the high or intermediate eligible for post-exposure prophylaxis categories, we then had to discuss the potential risks and benefits of post-exposure prophylaxis with the vaccine based on really very limited data. The vaccine that was made available to us is a replication incompetent derivative of vaccinia, so a much safer product to use than ACAM2000, which is full-on vaccinia uh, virus and replication competent. That said, the data we have to support the use of this product for post-exposure prophylaxis is really a second-order extrapolation of the observational data. We know from the, the smallpox era that when vaccinia is administered within four days of exposure, the reduction of symptomatic disease is, is substantial, not bulletproof, but substantial. And those who have breakthrough cases tend to have milder disease. And for those who receive vaccinia within the four to 14 day range after exposure to smallpox, tended to still benefit in terms, mostly in terms of attenuation of disease. And so we've extrapolated that to monkeypox. We have a, a very limited experience with post-exposure prophylaxis for monkeypox and measuring its efficacy. It's mostly extrapolated from what we've seen with smallpox. And the further extrapolation is using this replication incompetent vaccine instead of the vaccinia. When used as pre-exposure prophylaxis, the replication incompetent vaccine, when given as two doses separated by four weeks, generates an immune response which is similar to a single dose of vaccinia virus. And whether that matters in terms of efficacy for post-exposure prophylaxis is, is unknown. It is worth emphasizing that the vaccine we've been using is two doses separated by four weeks. So it's really six weeks before you get the maximum benefit from it. I'll add that in counseling about safety, as I mentioned before, the replication incompetent vaccine that we've been using is much safer than vaccinia, but still has a substantial rate of uh, significant local and nuisance level systemic reactions roughly the same quality and frequency as with the COVID vaccines. And, and that, that's how I frame my discussions with the uh, healthcare workers involved. One of the things that I just want to highlight here is, Kim, and you mentioned those one-on-one -on -one discussions. They could take, you know, a little bit of time. And one of the things that we had to do in order to have kind of informed discussions was talk about, well, what do we know about the transmission risk? in healthcare because we needed to be able to put this in the perspective. And so that was part of, as we were preparing in real time, and Keeman mentioned this, you know, we were working straight through 
many hours a day, all through the weekends, kind of coming up with our counseling list. There were several of us who signed up to be counselors. One of the things, Kim, and you put on the top is what is the transmission risk in healthcare settings? And that prompted the two of us to sit down and actually do a formal systematic review in order to inform some of those discussions. And that was recently published in Itchy as well. And just wondering what you think the major take home from that has been. Thank you, Erica. Indeed, the major take home from our rapid literature review is that the risk of transmission to healthcare workers in resource ample settings appears to be very low. In the course of our review in, of uh, reports from this century, we found one case report of transmission to a healthcare worker in the UK. This healthcare worker had been uh, changing bed linens of a patient while the patient had active lesions, but before the diagnosis of monkeypox was made. And the healthcare worker was doing so while wearing gloves and an apron, but not any sort of respiratory protection. This was before the onset of the SARS pandemic. So we were not all wearing masks at that time. So one might infer that there was aerosolization of infected uh, material from the bed linens in that case, although we don't know that for sure. But that was the only case report of transmission to a healthcare worker that we found amongst uh, hundreds of healthcare workers. So I, I think the bottom line is one of reassurance. Great, thanks. And as Erica pointed out, that systematic review of the literature was published in the July issue of Itchy. So I do encourage people to read that. I think it will be helpful in your discussions with potentially exposed healthcare workers when you're talking about the risks and benefits of various interventions. So again, thanks for um, helping all of us learn more about this important topic. So we end each podcast by asking each participant to give listeners an action item that they can take away from the podcast. And I think it's going to be really helpful to hear from each of you today because you all have a unique perspective and you've played different roles in the MGH response to monkeypox. So today's question is, what tip or piece of advice would you give to a facility that is developing or perhaps reevaluating its infection control and occupational health protocols in anticipation of monkeypox? And maybe I'll start with our clinicians, our clinical providers here on the call with us today. And maybe, Nestle, I can ask you to kick us off. Thank you. If you see an infection and the diagnosis isn't readily apparent, particularly if there are epidemiologic exposures that you know, may be out of the ordinary, confer with public health authorities and check the many early global reporting systems that are now available to see if there's a signal for patients like yours in those areas. And I think that would be my take home from this. Keeman, what do you think? So I think one of the silver linings of the COVID pandemic is that frontline clinicians have become much more accustomed to applying appropriate infection control measures with the gowns, gloves, and 95 respirators. And so my message is uh, to frontline clinicians is, in addition to having a heightened sense of suspicion, as Nestle has mentioned, don't panic. You know how to do this. We've been through it. You know how to protect yourself. And the risk of transmission to the healthcare workers appears to be very low, especially 
once these precautions are observed. Meredith, what do you think? So mine is sort of in the same vein as Keeman, actually, but thinking a little bit more specifically about PPE, I agree that people certainly know are familiar with the PPE at MGH. We're using the same PPE for the care of patients who are suspected or known to be infected with monkeypox as they are with COVID-19. So there is definitely a benefit in people being familiar with the PPE that we're using and comfortable wearing it. But then I think you also can have a downside where, you know, bad habits creep in over time and maybe they're not as careful with the donning and doffing as they once were. So I think it's important that we're having those discussions again, we're looking at our available resources and adapting what we need to do when relevant. And certainly a piece of that is making sure that staff know where to access their resources. Is there something online? Is there a website? Is there a donning and doffing checklist that we have available or need to make available so that people know how to, to don and doff their PPE correctly? And I also think it's really important that we're encouraging a culture of giving respectful feedback about PPE, right? We're all working hard. We're all in there together. And we can look out for each other and make sure that when we're going into an airborne infection isolation room that everybody has on an N95 respirator, right, before we go into the room or making sure that people's gowns are covering them fully in the back and things like that where we can really look out for each other's safety while we're doing our great work. How about you, Eileen? Yeah, thank you. My last piece of advice is that facilities, as you look at and prepare for and respond to the current outbreak of monkeypox, that you use this time to look at your plans more broadly. It's very tempting to focus on the situation in front of us, but really identifying how this current response preparation can strengthen your overall plans as you look ahead to future incidents, knowing that unfortunately we are in a, a growth-oriented business. So looking ahead, making sure plans are more broadly applicable to other pathogens and even other situations beyond outbreaks of infectious diseases. Erica, last but not least. So that's hard because everyone says such great things. I'm going to use my prerogative and give one piece of advice and one plea to the group that's listening. The piece of advice is, you know, we, you see a lot of ID and infection control people here, but it's a big team effort across many disciplines, many role groups that make us the team work and be successful, creative in responding to uh, challenges. And if you look at, for example, the acknowledgments in the New England Journal or any of the publications that have come out of here, it's all reflective of that. There are many, many people involved in this. I would say that that is, um, will set you up for success, but make sure whatever the size of your institution that you are reaching across broadly, all those role groups. The second part is the related plea which is that I hope that people will try to get their experiences out there in the public domain and published for us all to learn from. So we obviously conducted this very large exposure investigation. You didn't hear that there was a transmission because there wasn't a transmission and we're pooling that all together and we will put that out there, but everyone needs to, to the extent that they can, just try to get this out in the literature so that we can have more information to be able to inform our policies, our procedures, our counseling, all that is so important. And I know how exhausted everyone is, but I'm really hopeful that people will take the opportunity and the time to get their experiences out there so that we can all learn from each other. Great. Thanks, everyone. I think those were all really helpful suggestions. And I want to thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us today and for sharing your experiences and expertise regarding this rapidly evolving global outbreak of monkeypox.
I suspect that all of our listeners have learned something today. I certainly know that I have. For listeners interested in learning more on this topic, I do encourage you to read the papers that this group has published on this topic, which include two papers published in Itchy, one of which is in the July 2022 issue, and one is available online. And then, of course, the case report that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I also want to thank our producers, Lindsay McMurray and Barry Wilhelm. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast.